Spy Talk, a podcast at the intersection of intelligence, foreign policy, national security, and military operations with Jeff Stein and Gene Meserve. Hi there, I'm Jeff Stein. And I'm Gene Meserve. Welcome to another episode of Spy Talk. A senior State Department official is warning that the Ukraine situation is extremely dangerous and that Russia could invade Ukraine at, quote, any moment. I'm going to get into options for a U.S.-backed guerrilla war in Ukraine in a moment. But first, Gene has an important interview to tell you about. A nuclear-armed Iran is a terrifying prospect in the Middle East and beyond. But negotiations to restore the 2015 nuclear deal, which limited Iran's nuclear activities, do not appear to be making headway. And in the meantime, Iran's nuclear capability and stockpiles of enriched uranium are increasing. Uh, if they decided to go all out and create the material for a nuclear weapon, they could do it, let's say, in a couple of weeks. That was former Energy Secretary Ernie Moniz, now CEO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. We'll get his take on Iran's nuclear program and the ongoing negotiations to rein them in later in the podcast. Fighting soldiers from the sky. Fearless men who jump and die, men who mean just what they say, the brave men of the Green Berets. Can you believe the Ballad of the Green Berets was the number one hit in the U.S. for five weeks in the summer of 1966? That was before the Vietnam War and much else went sideways. But the Green Berets regained their star power a generation later when, in 2001, they were photographed on horseback helping local Afghan militias rout the Taliban. Now they're primed to play another leading role in Ukraine, where they and the CIA, according to reports, are urgently helping the Ukraine army and civilians prepare for a Russian invasion by training them in intelligence gathering, disinformation techniques, sabotage, and presumably killing. Nobody thinks the U.S.-backed Ukrainians can throw back the invaders, but the idea is to organize and support a long-term guerrilla war to bleed the Russians until it hurts. To explore that option, I called on David Maxwell, a retired Green Beret colonel who's written extensively on the subject of unconventional warfare. David Maxwell, welcome to Spy Talk. There was a headline back in May said U.S. Special Forces are training for full-blown war with Russia. A recent headline said CIA is training paramilitary uh, units in Ukraine. Now, first of all, let's clarify something. When we talk about special forces, we're not talking about Bruce Willis running around kicking down doors and uh, shooting up bad guys, are we? So let's just, first of all, just talk about what Special Forces does and doesn't do. Well, Special Forces is one of the the elements in the larger U.S. Special Operations Command. Uh, They are known as uh, the Green Berets, uh, based on on the traditional headgear that uh, President John F. Kennedy authorized for, uh, uh, for wear for Special Forces. Yep. And, and of course, uh, the, the typical uh, operational element is a 12-man special forces 
Operational Detachment Alpha, known as an ODA or known as an A-team. Uh, and, and that is the basic operational unit of special forces. Now, of course, in the special operations uh, community, we have many different forces, uh, the Army Rangers, the Navy SEALs, the Air Force Air Commandos, uh, pararescuemen. Uh, we have uh, the Naval Special Warfare combatant crewmen who man, man all the, uh, the special operations boats. Uh, we have the uh, 160th Special Operations Aviation Regiment, which flies the most advanced helicopters in, in the world. Uh, and of course, the Air Force also provides uh, a, a multitude of, of air platforms uh, for infiltration, exfiltration, and resupply. But when we're talking about special forces, uh, we are talking about a, an organization whose primary mission is unconventional warfare. Uh, which is to operate through, by, and with indigenous forces, uh, either to coerce, disrupt, or overthrow an occupying power or a, a hostile government. Uh, and they operate through uh, these capabilities called an auxiliary, an underground, and of course, uh, what everybody is familiar with, the guerrilla forces. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's primarily the mission of special forces. And mm -hmm. from that foundational mission grows many other uh, many other missions, foreign internal defense, special reconnaissance, uh, direct action, counterterrorism. Uh, but unconventional warfare is the mission that special forces organized, trained, equipped, educated, and optimized uh, to be able to conduct for our nation. Okay. Speaking of which, thank you for that. Um, a Ukrainian think tank director said just today in the New York Times that a very popular topic among Ukrainians today is how to join civilian resistance organizations. Is that what the U.S. Green Berets should be uh, involved in right now? Yes, I think that, uh, you know, the Special Operations Command Europe uh, has developed what's called the resistance operating concept. Uh, and this really uh, is about developing resistance capabilities uh, among countries uh, to be able to defend themselves uh, against hostile, external hostile uh, action. And of course, we know these primarily as Russia's little green men, uh, you know, their advances into Crimea, into the Donbass, into Ukraine, but also the Baltics and the Balkans uh, mm -hmm. as well. And so special forces are helping to uh, advise and assist countries who want to develop an indigenous resistance capability, which can contribute uh, to what the Department of Defense calls integrated deterrence, nuclear deterrence, conventional deterrence, and in this case, the use of a resistance for unconventional deterrence. It sounds a little bit today like, um, uh, you know, things we've seen in the movies and that we know historically how the British helped uh, the French resistance uh, bulk up against the Nazi Germans in World War II. Well, it wasn't just the, the Brits, it was the OSS, mm -hmm. the, the British Special Operations Executive, the U.S. Op, uh, Office of Strategic Services, uh, the Jedburgh teams, which were English, French, and American uh, uh, elements uh, helping the French resistance. And we've done that in, in many other places uh, as well, in uh, the, the China, Burma, India theater uh, happened in World War II as, as well. So, but it is really about... Uh, the risk to an invader that an organized, trained and equipped populace who is willing to resist, uh, that it places a, a very difficult uh, a dilemma for an occupier uh, to be able to uh, successfully 
occupy and control a country if the population resists uh, outside occupation. Mm -hmm. oh, of course, I shouldn't have left out the USA to the French underground. I was thinking of really early uh, in 1940 before we got involved uh, in the war so deeply. Um, but uh, we saw how this uh, special forces type aid, uh, con uh, unconventional warfare worked out vis-a-vis -vis the Red Army in Afghanistan. The U.S. was very successful uh, in conducting uh, guerrilla, in helping uh, the Afghan jihadis uh, oust the Red Army from, from Afghanistan. Of course, that had some blowback down the road, but... Uh, for the moment, it was very successful. Can you see that kind of thing playing out in Ukraine? Uh, yes, I, I think it. I think it's a logical, uh, a logical way to do that. And you made a very important point. Uh, it is not Americans or U.S. special forces uh, that are conducting operations. Uh, it is. It will be the Ukraine Ukrainian people themselves that will do that. If, if in fact, uh, it comes to that. And the U.S. has capabilities to advise and assist. Uh, but, you know, we have a, um, the special forces motto is de oppresso liber, to free the oppressed. And uh, we really like to talk about it is to help the oppressed free themselves. Uh, and that's really the key. We operate uh, by, with, and through these indigenous forces uh, to accomplish mutual uh, uh, strategic objectives. And in this case, of course, uh, it is to deter uh, conflict in Ukraine. And by presenting uh, Putin with a, a dilemma that he just cannot solve, uh, because for him to try to occupy Ukraine with a popular resistance, uh, it, will, it will create another Afghanistan for, uh, uh, for Russia. Uh, that's the best case scenario should uh, an invasion come. And it's appearing that it's more and more likely uh, that it is going to happen sometime between now as we're speaking and uh, late February when the uh, uh, ice turns to mud uh, and makes it much more difficult for uh, Russian units to uh, maneuver. Now, um, you wrote just last year, or in 2020 actually, the U.S. needs strategists and policymakers who have a deep understanding of and value the strategic options of unconventional warfare and counter unconventional warfare. Now, we've just spent the last few minutes discussing what seems to be accepted practices, uh, shared ideas about how unconventional warfare works. So what do you mean? That, that makes it sound like uh, U.S. leadership doesn't have a clue to what it's doing with unconventional warfare. Is that what you meant or am I misreading you? Well, I think that there is, um, you know, certainly there's a, you know, a popular understanding uh, of of uh, of these types of operations. However, uh, they are often not uh, considered uh, on the same level as other courses of action, and and that is primarily because uh, these activities require long duration. They're built on relationships, uh, and uh, and it takes time to see the effects. And we are much more, uh, we, we really demand, um, uh, you know, results uh, quickly. And of course, we've seen the last 20 years of the war on terrorism uh, and how that has played out. Uh, and I think people are tired of that. And, you know, counterintuitively, I think that makes it even more difficult uh, for people to accept these types of operations where we are not in the lead 
uh, where we are advising and assisting, but it will take some time uh, for these operations to play out successfully uh, to support our interests. And so our, our leaders tend to default to conventional operations. And of course, as we see in this in strategic competition, uh, our emphasis and our investment uh, goes to platforms, goes to battleships, to aircraft carriers, to uh, fighter wings, uh, to missiles, missile defense, which are all critically important in war fighting, as well as for conventional defense. Uh, but we don't uh, place enough emphasis on these elements where you have to lead by influence, you know, that takes place in the cognitive domain, domain, the human domain, uh, you know, as, as, um, T. Lawrence said, you know, long ago, irregular warfare, which is what we're really talking about, is far more intellectual than a bayonet charge. Mm -hmm. uh, and, uh, you know, this type of warfare uh, is not easily understood, not easily defined, uh, not easily measured, uh, and doesn't take place uh, in a short amount of time. It takes uh, a long duration to achieve effects in support of our national security. And the experience of uh, Lawrence of Arabia, who you were just referencing, uh, was uh, um, really uh, of great informational value to war planners uh, as the years went on. Of course, that was during the First World War. Now, it's been said that had special forces and the CIA been allowed to take the flight to the communists in Vietnam, we might have had a much better outcome there rather than pouring in large regular uh, troops. Uh, and it's been said also in Afghanistan that we might have had a better shot fight within the special forces community. Is that what you're is that what you're talking about? The shift from uh, Green Berets leading uh, jihadis on horseback uh, to uh, large-scale army units going into Afghanistan? Look, I'm not talking about an either-or, one is better than the other. Really, what I'm really talking about is getting our strategy right. Uh, and, um, and of course, uh, you know, just calling on a certain unit or a certain capability and postulating that that would have done better than, than other units, that really doesn't get us anywhere. Uh, what we really need to do is to develop strategy uh, based on an understanding of the environment, understanding of the threat, understanding of our objectives, goals and objectives, uh, and then apply the capabilities uh, in the right combination. And rarely uh, are any of these capabilities ap applied in a vacuum. You know, of course, special forces, special operations forces played a large role in Afghanistan and Iraq, as well as conventional forces. Uh, but we obviously didn't have our strategy right. And you referenced Vietnam, you referenced Afghanistan. The real problems are political problems and, and not our politics, not US politics, but political problems in the conflict area. Uh, you know, we tend to say that war is a continuation of politics by other means. That's what Clausewitz taught us. But our adversaries, uh, particularly the Russians and the Chinese, the Iranians, uh, and even the North Koreans say politics is war by other means. And in politics, you are coercing, you are influencing, uh, and not necessarily conducting kinetic operations. We tend to default to conducting kinetic operations. We wanna shoot, move, and communicate. We wanna take enemies off the battlefield. Uh, you know, we wanna fight and win wars, and which is necessary. But in a place like Ukraine, and I've heard this from, from friends who are, who are uh, in Ukraine, they don't want Americans to come and fight and die for the Ukrainians, but they do want our advice and assistance. Mm -hmm. They want our help 
uh, but not for Americans to come and fight and die. Your Ukrainians, from what I understand, they want to defend their country, uh, and they can best do that uh, with our aid and assistance. Well, you're right. And, and of course, a key element here, uh, swinging back to Vietnam and to Afghanistan, was the problem of who, who we were defending. Sure, we were there to help the Afghan uh, people get rid of the Taliban, but uh, we had a corrupt client, uh, a feckless and corrupt client in, in the success, success of Afghan governments. We had that problem all along in Vietnam. Uh, Ukraine is riddled with corruption, uh, although they seem girded uh, uh, for battle with the Russians, uh, or at least to sustain a resistance against the Russians. But that's the key element, isn't it? Having a good client? Well, it is, but it's also, this is the key way to look at it. Uh, we have to understand the indigenous way of war, the Ukrainian way of war, the Vietnamese way of war, the Afghan way of war. We cannot create them in our image. You know, we've got to understand their way of war and we have to adapt to that, not try to cause them to adapt to our way of war. Uh, and I think Afghanistan is the classic example. Uh, we tried to give them advanced military capabilities for which their history, their traditions, their culture, uh, you know, th their their capabilities were not suited uh, to maintain them, employ them, uh, but yet we tried to create mm -hmm. them in our image. And I think when we look at Ukraine, what we are trying to help them do in one aspect, uh, develop a resistance, this is based on, uh, from what I understand, uh, a long history of Ukraine in Ukraine where there is a tradition of resisting uh, occupiers, uh, you know, going back hundreds of years. And so uh, we're trying to advise and assist them in accordance with their way of war fighting. Uh, and resistance is one of the Ukrainian ways of, of war fighting. And so uh, it is a... Uh, it is something that we can bring to the table uh, with our advice and assistance and with select equipment uh, to be able to, uh, uh, to achieve the effects that the Ukrainians need to, to be able to achieve to defend themselves. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, I assume that you maintain lots of relationships in the special forces community. Uh, have you taken the temperature of what the special forces community is thinking about Ukraine? Are they girded for battle? Are they excited uh, to have this mission of, of getting the Ukrainians ready to wage guerrilla warfare against uh, Russian invaders? What, what do you sense is the, the mood in the special forces community? Well, I think that uh, you know, special forces, uh, they join special forces uh, to be able to do their job, to do their work. They have all special forces have a strong desire to live and work in foreign cultures uh, with indigenous forces. Uh, and they, they want to do their job. They want to deploy uh, and they want to achieve effects. Uh, and, you know, in, in this case, uh, if they are being employed in Ukraine, uh, it will be in a way that is uh, commensurate with their expertise and with the tradition of special forces. Uh, so I think that, uh, um, you know, it's not that uh, special forces soldiers will be excited uh, or, you know, want to, uh, you know, want to necessarily do this. They want to do their job. Uh, they want to make a difference. And I think that's really key. Uh, and so if they have the opportunity to work by, with, and through uh, Ukrainian forces, Ukrainian population, uh, that they will, they will, uh, you know, have a, uh, a lot of self-satisfaction uh, in doing that, in knowing that they're contributing 
first and foremost to U.S. strategic objectives, and then to be able to help uh, their friends, partners, and, and allies with whom they've developed relationships over the years uh, to be able to defend themselves. Uh, so I think that uh, this is a natural uh, employment of, of those capabilities uh, in accordance with the, the ideas that, that special forces, uh, you know, that special forces soldiers uh, joined uh, the regiment to be able to, to do. Well, they're certainly getting that opportunity now, and in a in a in a situation we haven't seen since World War II, or maybe we could also conclude Korea, I suppose. Um, I mean, they're they're looking at uh, a Russian invasion uh, with Russian troops and and uh, fighting against them, or preparing the Ukrainians to fight against them. And I suppose that they uh, these advisors will be on the battlefield should the Russians invade. So. What we have here is maybe a tripwire situation that could escalate very quickly into a, a larger confrontation with the Russians. Uh, I pray that 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 doesn't happen. Anyway, uh, David Maxwell, thanks so much for your your insight uh, on this subject. One last question: You write again and again in your many papers that one of the other key elements of uh, resistance is resilience and persistence. This means it could be a very long haul in Ukraine and that persistence and resistance could be required over several years, crossing several American or at least a few American administrations. We haven't shown uh, being very good at consistency on our commitments uh, over the last 20 years. So um, that's kind of a cloudy situation, a worrisome element, isn't it? Well, yes, but I think uh, I'm I'm hopeful that uh, you know as long as as we understand what are in U.S. national strategic interests, we need to maintain that commitment, that strategic resolve uh, to accomplish the mission for U.S. Uh, national security. Uh, and uh, often our our interests align with our friends, partners, and allies. And Ukraine is certainly a friend and a partner. Uh, and um, you know, and so I I'm confident that if uh, you know, we make a commitment. We we have to sustain it uh, until it's uh, you know until it's not sustainable or until uh, uh, we achieve the objectives that we seek to achieve. Uh, mm -hmm. And that's really key. I mean, that's the fundamental question uh, for uh, for Ukraine is what do we want to achieve there? And the broader question is what is the acceptable, durable political arrangement in Ukraine and in the region that will support, protect, sustain, and advance U.S. national security interests. That's what we should be seeking to achieve. Uh, and it really takes a whole of government uh, effort to try to achieve that and working with our NATO allies, uh, with our regional partners, and most importantly, uh, supporting uh, the Ukrainian government and the Ukrainian people against a very, uh, a very difficult threat. Well, I'm glad you brought up our NATO allies because it's really at, at, at the end of the day, it's really a European problem as, as much, if not more, an American problem. Uh, Ukraine is not a NATO ally. Uh, it is not an ally of European NATO members. Uh, we have an interest in throwing back or discouraging the Russians from uh, an all-out invasion of a European country. Uh, but uh, 
in the end, it's really going to come down to the European response and how how they engage with this question, this with persistence and resilience over time. Anyway, thanks again, Colonel David Maxwell. It's just an honor to have you on our show, and I, I suspect we will have you back again one way or another. Thank you. Thank you for having me. David Maxwell is Senior Fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Jean? And I did see this week that the Canadians are now sending special forces into Ukraine. So Mm. the situation becomes more ominous. Definitely. A reminder to subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack and follow us on Twitter. I'm at Jean Meserve. Jeff is at... Spy Talker. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Iran's nuclear program. In 2018, former President Donald Trump withdrew from the nuclear deal with Iran known as the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCPOA. Negotiations to restore the deal are underway in Vienna, but don't appear to be making much progress. In the meantime, Iran, unfettered, has increased its enrichment of uranium to 60%. Ernie Moniz is CEO of the Nuclear Threat Initiative. As Secretary of Energy in the Obama administration, he helped negotiate the original Iran nuclear deal. We asked him to assess Iran's current nuclear capability. Uh, If they decided to go all out and create the material for a nuclear weapon, they could do it, let's say, in a couple of weeks. Do they uh, have the rest of the technological capabilities they need to actually fashion a bomb? Uh, no, no. So this is about the, the nuclear material, right? which is the long pole in the tent. Uh, but to make a weapon, there are a whole bunch of other activities uh, that have to be taken into account. Uh, for example, uh, presumably, uh, they would want uranium, the uranium to be fashioned into metal uh, for the bomb. Uh, Well, in these last year, they've also done some work on uranium metal, um, uh, for example. Uh, Still, there's many systems to come together, especially if you want to uh, design a bomb that can be transported on the top of a a ballistic missile. Uh, So there's still some work there, but but the uranium material is the long pole in the tent, uh, and there they are very, very close. The the, the maximum uh, enrichment that we can easily see a possible need for in a civilian program would be just below 20%, to give you an idea. But going back to what they've done, one might argue that more than the 60% enrichment, the most dangerous step is that, uh, which would not have been possible with the JCPOA, uh, is that they have gone on to master, demonstrate the technologies for advanced centrifuges that enrich much, much faster than the uh, centrifuges they were allowed to use uh, under the Iran agreement. And one reason why that is so particularly concerning, when you combine that, with the fact that they have withdrawn from many of the verification issues uh, that the agreement put in place, the, you know the, what the what the international inspectors 
uh, can do. Well, if you don't have visibility into what they're doing and they have centrifuges that are much more capable, the possibility of designing a covert program goes up significantly. So uh, we really need to get back uh, ideally to something something like the Iran Agreement, the, the JCPOA, uh, in terms of their nuclear activities. How good is our intelligence on what they're doing? Well, I think uh, it is clear uh, from events on the ground in Iran uh, that uh, somebody seems to have very good intelligence, at least in terms of what's going on uh, in, in Iran. Uh, obviously, they've the Iranians have had some uh, problems uh, with their uh, materials. They've had problems with their scientists. Uh, and so obviously there is uh, a significant amount of intelligence available. Uh, are you talking about the Israelis here? Um, whoever. <laughs> but we wink, have, wink. <laughs> but, but you believe we do have a pretty good picture of where things stand. Uh, I, I would say so, yes. There were cameras at one point at Iranian nuclear facilities as part of the agreement, um, as well as the inspections that you've mentioned. Uh, is any of that still in place? Uh, there is some still in place, uh, but uh, the problem is that uh, the IAEA, uh, the International uh, Atomic Energy Agency, uh, is not being given access to that data. So the data apparently have been recorded. And the statement has been that if the agreement is reinstated, then the IAEA will get retroactively access to all those data, uh, which, uh, which monitor uh, construction of the key parts of centrifuges, monitor who's going in and out, monitor seals, uh, et cetera. Very, very important uh, because if the IAEA uh, even eventually regains uh, the verification capabilities that they had, but has a big gap in the data, well, that means they've lost custody of the information, if you like, uh, and it would hard, be hard to know what went on. So that's why it's so important to get back to where they were, but also to have access uh, to the data in this intervening period. Some people have suggested that the Iranians are dragging their feet in the negotiations because they want to make more progress on their nuclear program. Do you buy that argument? Um, it could be. I, I think there are many factors in terms of why these negotiations have not been going on, as far as we know, not going on very well. Uh, the, uh, but I do want to emphasize that, in my view, if we go back to an agreement with Iran, it should have all, or at least if it's an interim agreement, many of the restrictions unchanged from what they were in 2015. So for example, it's often not appreciated that on the nuclear constraint side of the, of the agreement, the most important single item was the restriction to 300 kilograms of enriched uranium, enriched to no more than okay, 3.67%. In other words, low enrichment. Sufficient enrichment to be part of the core of a civilian 
nuclear reactor and not more. Uh, now, they are so far beyond that, but I would argue they have to be brought back down to that, at least for the period of the agreement. And for that agreement, it was 15 years. So that would go until 2031. Can you go backwards here? Certainly they can give up material, but they're not going to give up their knowledge. They know how to do this now. Correct. Uh, and it was always the case. That was the case in 2015 as well. They may not have known how to use uh, completely these very advanced centrifuges. But once you know how to enrich to any level, in principle, you could just put enough machines together to enrich to, to, to weapons grade. So that's not really a new thing other than the, 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 the degree of capability that they have is certainly higher. But that's why I say we have to roll back. Look, in 2015, they rolled back. Uh, in 2015, they had a lot more than 300 kilograms. They had 20% enriched uranium. All of that excess uranium was taken out of the country. Well, physically, that can happen again. Politically, it may be a different issue because bluntly, when President Trump withdrew from the agreement, the Iranians had taken some irreversible steps. They had sent a lot of uranium, enriched uranium out of the country. They sent heavy water out of the country. They had the reactor, the Iraq reactor, A-R-A-K, uh, to be clear, uh, reactor, about which we and the Israelis, by the way, were extremely concerned. Well, they destroyed the main piece of that, as was in the agreement. Personally, look, I'm, I'm not a negotiator anymore, uh, but, but personally, I think we're going to have to find ways to get them, if you like, back in the box, and yet in doing so, not taking any irreversible steps, because clearly their demand that the United States say that any new agreement or re revised agreement is irreversible, that's impossible. There's, there's, no, way, there's no way to do that. Uh, e even a treaty, uh, we, as we have seen, is, is reversible. So we will need some physical steps uh, to get them back to where they were and yet uh, not have them be reversible steps. Do you think these talks are going to succeed? I think it's a very tough call. Obviously, uh, uh, they look to be on life support. Um, uh, the on, the, talks on the other hand, mean? sorry, the, the talks, yeah. Uh, and, um, and, and for example, one of the things that I think is very disconcerting is uh, the Iranian ins insistence that the United States cannot physically negotiate with them because we are out of compliance. I see a little bit of a logical problem here. It seems to me Iran is not in compliance either. Uh, so maybe the non-compliant countries should get together uh, and, uh, and negotiate directly. What difference uh, does it mean if we're going through an intermediary? Obviously, there's a little time lag. Perhaps things get confused uh, to some well, yeah, minor degree. There's certainly much more uh, possibility of a, of a miscommunication, a, a misunderstanding. 
Uh, but I, I know from my own experience in 2015, I mean, there was nothing like sitting there eyeball to eyeball across a table uh, in order to make the difficult trade-offs that one makes in a uh, negotiation like this. Uh, because on the positive side, and that's why there were a lot of mixed signals. Uh, just recently, the chair of the Iranian Parliamentary Commission on National Security and Foreign Affairs said he had an open mind to an interim agreement. Well, that's something we had not heard before. So, you know, again, it's on life support, but there are a few glimmers of hope uh, that perhaps a negotiation could break out. There's a harder line uh, president in Iran now than when you were negotiating. Uh, that makes it more difficult. I also heard you mention uh, in one forum that um, you thought that Iran had never seen the economic benefits that it expected to under the first agreements. Do those two things make it less likely that Iran is going to actually agree to some new structure? Right. Well, on the first point, let me be slightly Pollyannish uh, and uh, make the argument that uh, one of the major problems with the JCPOA and getting to the JCPOA was that both countries had a bifurcated political situation. Uh, that is no longer true in Iran. <laughs> Whether it's good or bad, <laughs> you can interpret that. It remains true in the United States, obviously. Uh, and, uh, and I think it will be very difficult to have a sustainable agreement without some degree of political accommodation uh, between the parties. On the economic benefits, uh, it is correct that Iran never realized the foreign direct investment that uh, was envisioned. Uh, frankly, I always thought it would take several years of compliance uh, and some straightening out in their domestic economy uh, to, uh, to realize uh, those gains. But we shouldn't forget that, of course, the main economic gain that Iran did realize was the ability, again, to export uh, all, uh, essentially all the oil it, it, it produced. Uh, so they very rapidly, frankly, more rapidly than I expected, uh, returned to their uh, uh, older levels of oil export, two and a half to three million barrels a day. Uh, and that was quite a major uh, revenue source. Make no mistake about it, the Iranians were very, very interested in this possibility of buying modern civilian aircraft. Uh, and of course, that didn't happen, uh, a major issue. Um, uh, I think that uh, I have to say that uh, not only with Iran, but with any country, I've always felt that humanitarian uh, aid, especially in this age of pandemic, was important. I think, I think we really need to, to go there. I mean, on, basically on humanitarian grounds. Uh, and I think that uh, there are areas where uh, potentially we can remove weight of our, uh, 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 we have put sanctions on things like rebuilding that reactor I mentioned earlier, uh, uh, which I think is good for, non, for our non-proliferation goals. Uh, we've put sanctions on that, blocking the Chinese uh, and the Europeans from helping rebuild that reactor. 
we can do that. And then there were some issues in terms of, uh, uh, for example, uh, uh, international oil companies helping with the uh, with a domestic uh, development of a petrochemical industry, for example, which would be to their economic benefit. Uh, uh, and that was all stopped. So I think we um, we could completely within the bounds of the agreement as it stands. Uh, though that's an example of a set of set of actions we could take. You mentioned the Russians. Uh, we're on in a face-off right now with the Russians over Ukraine. How does that dynamic potentially affect the negotiations? Well, first of all, I think it's worth going back to the JCPOA having been signed in July of 2015 and the Russian uh, incursion in Crimea was in early 2014. So we were already uh, in a difficult spot. The Russians were already in Syria. Uh, and despite all that, it was compartmentalized because the Russians also made it clear, and I think continue to make it clear, that they share our interest in not having the Middle East become a nuclear weapons uh, zone. So the hope is that, uh, that they would be as constructive as they were in 2015 in helping reach an agreement. If you were to put odds on the likelihood of there being an agreement reached this time around, what would those odds be? I'm not going to put any numbers on it, but uh, I think um, I think life support is a pretty good indication. <laughs> Some people have suggested that one of the reasons President Trump was able to pull out of this deal was that it was an executive agreement. It never was ratified by the U.S. Senate. If, perchance, another agreement were reached, would you advocate Senate ratification, and do you think the Biden administration would have any hope of getting it? Well, I think an, an agreement that um, is equal to or similar to the JCPOA as a political issue, uh, I don't think uh, could uh, cross the uh, the two thirds uh, uh, requirement. Uh, uh, I, I clearly, I do think a treaty is better than an executive agreement. But the difference between them, I think, is also exaggerated. Uh, for example, as you said, President Trump, uh, in, in the end, pulled back out of, out of an executive agreement. I remind you, he also pulled out of treaties. <laughs> so, uh, uh, you know, I think, I think more is made of that uh, than, uh, than should be. Uh, the fact is that historically, presidents, even when they had to swallow hard, respected the agreements made internationally uh, by, uh, by previous presidents. Uh, that was not the case in the last administration. Didn't matter whether it was an executive agreement or, uh, or, uh, or a treaty. If there is no deal with the Iranians, what does it mean for the region in terms of nuclear proliferation? Well, uh, I think uh, no deal has many different flavors. Uh, so, for example, is it a no deal, but with Iran going back to many of the verification commitments it made without, without necessarily restricting uh, its nuclear activities? That's a very different world than one where uh, there's no international uh, verification uh, and, uh, and, uh, and transparency. Uh, I say that because I've always said, I've said it many times, in my view, 
the most important part of the 2015 agreement was the verification and transparency measures. That's, after all, the cameras you mentioned earlier, for example, they are all located at declared nuclear facilities. But I, I mean, I think any reasonable person would believe that Iran would be far more likely to pursue a nuclear weapons program covertly rather than overtly at the declared facilities. So it's really having a network of, of verification of national intelligence means uh, all uh, playing together uh, to lend confidence to the idea that there is no nuclear weapons uh, program being, being revived. That then makes a huge difference in terms of the risks in the region. Uh, clearly, uh, Saudi Arabia is, is a focal point for concern. The, the Saudi crown prince has declared that if Iran is pursuing a weapon, they will pursue a weapon. Well, uh, of course, they don't have anything like the nuclear infrastructure uh, that Iran has uh, today. Uh, uh, so how the entire nuclear infrastructure, uh, nuclear fuel cycle, so-called, develops in the region is critical. We should not forget that the Emirates, the UAE, uh, actually has what is in fact called the gold standard of non-proliferation uh, commitments. That is, they have committed uh, to not enrich uranium domestically, nor to remove plutonium from the irradiated fuel. Uh, they have stayed with that uh, through this whole Iran agreement. That's great. Saudi Arabia has made clear they will not sign uh, a gold standard. Uh, and so how that develops will be critical. And the less that we know about what Iran is doing, the more likely it is that Saudi Arabia, I believe, would start taking some steps. Uh, I don't mean a weapons program initially, but at least developing the nuclear infrastructure uh, that could be the foundation of, uh, of a program if they felt compelled to do it because of Iran go, going there. So the hope is that neither, neither goes there, that we have a Gulf region that uh, remains uh, free of, of nuclear weapons. Uh, we believe we've, been we've given a lot of thought to uh, ways in which that could be advanced. Uh, and I'd love to have the chance to, <laughs> to sit down with them and to, uh, to talk that through. The key, I'll just say the key is, going back to the JCPOA, we believe that a Gulf regional agreement based upon the kinds of verification and transparency measures that were put in place with the JCPOA could be the foundation of a regional uh, condominium. Without a new Iranian agreement, one presumes that the risk of Israeli strikes increases uh, because they've been adamant about the fact they don't want to see a nuclear-capable Iran. So does it significantly um, raise the risk of active conflict in the region? Well, look, uh, the Israelis have been pretty straightforward, as you've said, about their uh, concerns and their options. Uh, the, uh, again, a major issue is what do we know about what's going on in Iran, uh, including the international inspectors uh, combined with 
national means of, uh, of, of intelligence co uh, collection. Uh, I do believe if the Israelis feel that they cannot be sure that Iran is not developing a nuclear weapon, uh, they will consider probably fairly extreme measures. Do you want to define that? No. <laughs> but it's not pretty. It, it would not be pretty, that's for sure. And it could broaden. Uh, and it, Absolutely. I mean, obviously, anything starts, uh, you, don't, you don't know uh, where it ends. You know, I, I do want to say, though, you know, we mentioned Saudi Arabia earlier and their concerns. Just to say that, you know, they have a lot of reasons to be concerned. Uh, after all, they have been the victim of cyber attack, uh, of rocket attacks, of drone attacks, uh, which are presumably traceable to Iran or its proxies uh, in the region. So, you know, that's why, look, we have a real tinderbox here. Uh, there's, no, there's no question about it. And, uh, and restoring an agreement that provided confidence uh, in the absence of a weapons program uh, uh, would really help uh, tamp down uh, the, the concerns, but it has to be accompanied as we had planned uh, in 2015, 2016. It has, to be, it has to be accompanied by actions to resolve these regional problems. Uh, all of the various proxies from you know, Yemen to Iraq, to Syria, to Lebanon, uh, uh, to Gaza maybe. Uh, you know, so those have to be addressed um, and the militarization not nuclear, but the militarization of that region uh, is just getting worse and worse. And the Saudis have been the victims of a lot of it, let's face it. That was Ernie Moniz, now president of the Nuclear Threat Initiative, formerly Secretary of Energy. He spoke, Jeff, very delicately about Israel. Just a reminder that those problems with Iran's nuclear program that he alluded to included attacks on Iranian nuclear facilities and the assassination of Iranian nuclear scientists. Israel is determined to keep Iran's nuclear program in check. Yeah, I noted that he dodged the question of uh, Israel's responsibility for the assassinations and sabotage in Iran, but it's widely known. And in fact, uh, sources in Israel have been all too eager to put out their successes in uh, liquidating uh, members of the Iranian nuclear team. Uh, the U.S. has also struck in uh, Tehran with the help of the Israelis taking out uh, an al-Qaeda uh, operative. So um, they're going to keep a hand in there. Um, uh, there's competing interests in Israel over these uh, assassinations, not entirely approved of, but uh, we're going to see more of that. And I'm, I'm only hoping that we can revive these moribund talks. Uh, he didn't seem too optimistic about it himself. No, he certainly didn't. Brain dead, I think, was the term he used. And that's it for this edition of Spy Talk. Remember, you can subscribe to Spy Talk on Substack. We also, of course, would love to have you subscribe to our podcast. I'm Jean Meserve. And I'm Jeff Stein. Thanks for sticking with us. For more original reporting and insights like this, subscribe to spytalk.co on Substack and follow us on Twitter at talk underscore spy. If you enjoyed our podcast, subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.